Hi, I'm Sam Tracy. And I'm Rochelle Young. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully to have some fun while we're doing it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. We'll start things off with the biggest drug news from the last week and a few important things to look forward to. Then, after a shout out to one of our favorite nonprofits, we'll be talking about recent news, policy, and trends in the world of nitrous oxide in our fourth and final installment of September's Drug of the Month. Then next up, Sam will be chatting with Sarah Gale and Irina Alexander of the Zendo Project, an initiative to provide psychedelic harm reduction at music festivals and other events. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if we're not using that knowledge to improve the world. So thanks for joining us for episode 12 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we run down some of the top drug news stories from the past week and give you a heads up about some big things coming up. Rochelle, do you want to start things off with our first story? Absolutely, Sam. So our first story this week, um, it was a major announcement by the drugstore chain CBS. On Thursday, they said they had plans to expand access to naloxone without a prescription to 12 more states. So naloxone, um, the opioid overdose reversal drug, is actually already currently available um, over-the-counter in Rhode Island and Massachusetts without a prescription. And it's also available in every CVS store with a prescription. But CVS is adding uh, 12 more states where in each of its stores within that state, you'll be able to obtain um, naloxone over-the-counter. And so those 12 states are Arkansas, California, Minnesota, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, Utah, and Wisconsin. This is all part of a larger effort by CVS to help prevent and combat um, the prescription drug abuse epidemic that we've touched upon for several episodes. Um, And that effort by CVS also includes a partnership with Boston Medical Center and Rhode Island Hospital to provide demonstrations on how to use naloxone rescue kits and as well as donating hundreds of hundreds of drug collection units to law enforcement departments throughout the U.S. so that they can safely collect and dispose of unwanted prescription medication like your expired pills and stuff like that. This is awesome news because, I mean, especially with some of the the news out of the Gloucester experiment here in Massachusetts with the police chief uh, essentially doing some kind of de facto decriminalization, uh, a a lot of that has been fueled by some anger pointed towards uh, pharmaceutical companies and pharmacies, and so it's really good to see uh, a, a huge chain like CVS is actually taking some proactive steps to uh, to help fight the overdose epidemic, or at least uh, some of its negative effects. And again, it's really interesting to see how um, mainstream and acceptable the use of naloxone has become, considering a major uh, retail outlet like CVS is making it so accessible. Um, 
if you uh, for our listeners they may remember from previous discussions but naloxone has actually been quite controversial in the past because of these incorrect beliefs that um, its use would encourage the perception of risk-free drug use and actually encourage more people to use intravenous drugs or opiates um, and as we know of course naloxone actually doesn't provide a high it's not psychoactive um, it's non-addictive and it has been incredibly e- effective at saving lives and obviously overdose reversal is incredibly painful and difficult to go through even in emergency situations so it's not something people would want to routinely undergo um, so providing further access in uh, pharmacies is going to be a great way to combat um, the rising opiate use. And for, for our next story is also in the world of pharmaceutical drugs. And anyone on the internet probably saw this one because it, it blew up and actually kind of concluded in, in just a matter of days. Uh, so it's a man named Martin Shkreli, who's a 32-year-old former hedge fund manager, uh, bought the facilities to manufacture this very niche drug and then promptly raised its cost from $13.50 per pill to $750 per pill, which is an increase of 5,500%. So this drug called Daraprim, uh, it's used to treat toxoplasmosis, which is a common infection that is not a big deal for most people, but can be very life-threatening for people with weakened immune systems like AIDS patients or people who are going through chemotherapy. Uh, And this caused a major public backlash with doctors saying that it would reduce patients' ability to access the drug and media and activists using it as kind of a perfect case study in pharmaceutical costs gone wild. He justified it by saying that the drug was formerly underpriced in comparison to his competitors, which a lot of people did challenge. And it is pretty clear that he just wanted to corner the market on a drug and then use that monopoly position to raise prices and totally make a killing off of it. And so he defended himself for a few days, but eventually the backlash was so strong that he caved and said that he would lower the price, though he hasn't said what he would lower it to and said that they're going to be deciding over the next few weeks. So we'll have to keep an eye on this story for that one. This is just such a... I mean, I'm glad that the backlash was strong enough to push him back, but like, it makes me wonder how how inflated the price of uh, everyday pharmaceuticals are in general. Um, I'm sure if we did a little more research, we could dig up like what the cost of producing the drug or generic form is versus like what most people have to pay. Um, mm-hmm. In many yeah, cases, yeah, with this one, it was that in India, it's only five cents a pill. Oh my god! So it is incredibly cheap to to actually produce, and this is much more of a Uh, just a a unique U.S. sort of thing. Yeah, it's kind of upsetting also that his justification was that it was underpriced compared to competitors. You know, it's like, it's like then everybody is overpricing everyone, you know? It's not really good evidence Mm -hmm. that he is in the, like, morally correct about what he chose to do. Exactly. I mean, there was a lot of articles that were doing some cost comparisons of, you know, co- uh, the cost of drugs in the United States and elsewhere. And there are so many other ones that are wildly inflated. And there was also in the New York Times article that broke this story, uh, mention of a couple other drugs that pretty much the same thing had happened before, but just not to the same extent. Uh, but this is a, a really chronic problem in the American healthcare sector, just because, uh, all these other drugs are, are wildly inflated, but it's just that this one was so much more that it caused a backlash. So hopefully we'll be able to, uh, to to see more of a backlash against this in a more general sense rather than just people forgetting about this. Okay, segueing into a little more drug war oriented story and kind of a recent history in the drug war uh, saga. 
So this past Saturday uh, marked the one-year anniversary of the mass kidnapping of 43 students in Iguala, Mexico. So for those who haven't heard the story, last year on September 26, a group of more than 100 students from a rural teacher's college um, in the state of Guerrero, um, a college that is actually historically known for its left-wing student activism, were traveling to Iguala to protest what they saw as discriminatory hiring and funding in education. Um, and then on the way, they were intercepted by municipal police. Um, a brief shootout ensued in which six people were killed and a bunch more fled. And the police rounded up everyone they could find. And at some point, the students were handed over to the Guerreros Unidos, a cartel that controls that region. Um, and in, initially, 57, 57 students were reported missing. Sorry about that. But about a dozen ended up turning up safely and alive later on. But the remaining 43 are still missing today. And it's been over a year since like this huge kidnapping ha has occurred. So just to connect this to the drug war, the case has become has come to symbolize on an international level all of the violence, deaths, and disappearances caused by the drug war in Mexico, um, as well as the corruption and complicity of public officials in propping up these criminal cartels, and in an even larger sense, the futility and failure of the war on drugs. So also earlier this month, a 500-page report was actually released about this case, about the disappearance of all these students by the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. And it contradicts claims made by federal officials in Mexico um, that place all of the blame for what happened on local politicians and basically makes a scapegoat of the Iguala mayor and his wife. Oh, wow. So they were just trying to, to pin all of the blame on him rather than actually recognizing the inherent nature of the just corruption between the police forces and the uh and the cartels there yeah they were basically saying that it was like one rogue actor that the the mayor and his wife handed these these kids or worked in conjunction with the local police and handed these kids over to the drug cartels and it's honestly still not entirely clear what the motivation for disappearing these students are whether it was for political purposes because of their student activism uh, some, you know, unreliable, kind of unreliable witnesses said that they were suspected of being from a rival gang, but that's probably the least likely version of the story. Um, but overall, it's just, it's just symbolizes like how actually not, not uncommon these types of disappearances are in the drug war. Uh, more than a hundred thousand Mexicans have been murdered in the past uh, decade because of the U.S. supported war, war on drugs that's occurring down there. 25,000 have disappeared and 1 million have been dis displaced. So we can look at all this violence and corruption across the border. But this is really all caused by American drug policy and especially American drug consumption that relies on uh, that drug trade in, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so clearly a huge systemic issue when it's just at that scale and completely cannot be the case of just, you know, millions of bad apples. Right. <laughs> And so for our next story is uh, one that also folks might have seen online, but uh, earlier this month, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor gave a speech about civic engagement to a room full of students at Amherst College here in Massachusetts, and talking about the importance of getting involved in politics to, to steer our country in the right direction and restore people's faith in government. Uh, part of her speech was she told the crowd, you know, we can only change the conditions you don't like if each and every one of us becomes passionate about something. I don't really care what kind of what kind of thing you become passionate about. Maybe legalizing marijuana, but you know, even that as people have become passionate and have accomplished something. Uh, so the way that she said it, uh, 
she's essentially just dismissing marijuana legalization as really her one exception of get involved in any political issue, whether you agree with me or not, except legalizing marijuana. So this angered a lot of uh, drug policy reform activists. She was essentially dismissing it uh, just as a frivolous issue, which is really sad to see, especially coming from Sotomayor, who is the first and only Hispanic Supreme Court justice. And it's an issue that is so important, and it's obviously not just about getting high, but it's about uh, stopping these injustices that are committed against communities of color. And just like you were saying in the in the last story, has affected Mexico and South America so so much more intensely than the U.S. To be honest, yeah, this is really similar to like I think I feel like a lot of public officials have made similar comments. You know, like I think Barack Obama even said something uh, similar previously. You know that this isn't the biggest issue facing. Uh, America or the youth of today um, but it's really undermining the real life consequences of what marijuana policy is doing to people's lives I mean criminal justice has become such a prominent issue nationally and uh, everyone is lining up both Republicans and Democrats you know have now acknowledged that our criminal justice system is broken but they refuse to connect the dots to marijuana policy um, as one of the major factors in that so Actually, I think the Pope is visiting uh, someone in jail um, during his U.S. visit, and that person is going to be someone who was locked up for the mere possession of marijuana or something. So maybe he can say something good about that oh, too, wow. Pope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're <laughs> listening, Pope. Pope on this issue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's good to hear. And I mean, especially with, uh, with Sotomayor's speech, it's even more ridiculous just because there's so many people I know, I mean, kind of myself included, that drug policy reform is one of the, the first issues you get really involved with. But then that makes you understand the political process a lot better. It shows you of, I mean, how much progress we're having, as all of our listeners, I'm sure, realize this is one of the issues, along with gay marriage, that has moved so quickly in recent years when nothing else has been happening. So it's uh, it can definitely be a launch pad to kind of a life of political activism, too. Definitely. And that's a good segue for our weekly for for our first weekly forecast, at least. Um, So coming up uh, in two weeks is a deadline that you guys all should be aware of if you want to participate in this next thing I'm going to tell you about. So at DPA's International Drug Policy Conference coming up this November in D.C., Students for Sensible Drug Policy will be hosting a Model UN simulation of um, the General Assembly special session on the world drug problem. So that means if you want to participate, you can select a country to represent in one of three committees, which will study the intersection between drugs and health, drugs and crime, and drugs and human rights. So this is a great way to learn about drug policies in other countries um, or to take knowledge that you already have or maybe papers that you've already written for classes and apply it in a practical setting, um, as well as experience firsthand um, what it feels like to participate in international drug policy discussions and see the process of how they're developed. So it's also a great primer for when the real UNGAS, which is the, the short name for the General Assembly special session, um, so for when the real UNGAS happens um, next April in New York City, um, and SSDP is actually trying to bring a ton of students to that UNGAS. So it'd be really cool if you did the model UN simulation and got to see firsthand what that was like. And then next spring, you get to go to UNGAS and see how how the, you know, big people, how the grownups do it. <laughs> <laughs> so the deadline to select a country and submit your position paper, which it shouldn't take too long, it's about a page and a page and a half, is on October 13th. 
So remember that date, October 13th, and make sure you pick a country and submit your brief before then. Um, we're going to post a link on our website to the uh, Model Ungas page, or if you have any questions, you can email Jake Agliata from SSDP, and his email is jake at ssdp.org. Awesome. I'm definitely looking forward to that being both a huge drug policy nerd and a former Model UN nerd in high school. So, <laughs> and I'm actually going to be moderating one of those, uh, one of the three sessions. So very excited for oh it. Oh my God. Awesome. So if you're a fan of Sam, make sure you participate so that he can moderate you. <laughs> and so for our next forecast coming up is also SSDP related because this Thursday, October 1st is SSDP's 17th birthday. Uh, so we talk a lot about it on our show, but for those listening for the first time, SSDP is Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international organization of high school, undergrad, and grad students, and alumni working to end the war on drugs. So that's where Rochelle, Tyler, and myself all first got involved in drug policy reform. Uh, Tyler actually now works as an SSDP staff member coordinating our hundreds of chapters. And so this Thursday, October 1st, marks 17 years since a, a small group of students at a handful of colleges in the Northeast decided to start calling themselves SSDP. Uh, with it quickly growing into a strong network, then an official nonprofit, adding professional staff members, and now it has over 250 chapters in countries all over the world, 3,000 active members, and a massive alumni network. So if you're an SSDPer, celebrate his birthday with us this Thursday. Uh, and if you're not, check them out at SSDP.org and see how you can support their great work. Awesome. So that's been this week's uh, weekly news and forecasts. Um, as you all know, we keep a close eye on all things drug policy, drug policy uh, news and updates, but there's so much going on and especially um, with stuff coming up that if you ever see anything that you think we should feature in our news portion or any events or hearings coming up that you'd like us to know about, feel free to shoot us a message on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And now for a shout out to one of our favorite nonprofits, Flex Your Rights. Flex Your Rights aims to educate the public about how basic constitutional protections apply during encounters with law enforcement. Unlike other advocacy organizations such as SSDP or Normal, Flex Your Rights is not chapter based. Instead, its focus is on creating and distributing media and materials that explain individuals' legal rights during a police encounter. This includes the feature length films. Busted, The Citizen's Guide to Surviving Police Encounters, and 10 Rules for Dealing with Police. The Flex Your Rights YouTube channel has more than 35 million views and 125,000 subscribers. Flex was founded in 2002 and is based in Washington, D.C. To learn more about Flex Your Rights, visit their website, www.flexyourrights.org. <laughs> And now it's time for the Drug of the Month, where we dive into the background, science, history, and current news and trends surrounding a different drug each month. September's Drug of the Month is Nitrous Oxide, and last week we learned about its history, who discovered and developed its medical uses, 
when people started using it, and how laws and attitudes around the drug have evolved over time. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the recent news and trends surrounding nitrous oxide. As I mentioned on last week's episode, nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas, has been used recreationally for many centuries. As early as the 1790s, fancy people in the British upper class were holding posh laughing gas parties. The trend was revived in the 1960s, particularly in the United States and particularly by the Grateful Dead, who took to carrying a large tank of compressed nitrous on their tour bus. But it appears to have especially persisted among the UK's elite. The tabloidy Daily Mail published a piece in 2012 announcing that the celebrity party drug du jour, which even Prince Harry had been spotted using, was only now infiltrating middle-class living rooms. By 2015, a prominent British newspaper declared laughing gas, quote, the party drug of choice for young people. In the UK, more than 350,000 people between the ages of 16 and 24 reported using the gas in 2012. Just a year and a half later, use had risen by more than 100,000 people, up to approximately 470,000 users, according to the UK-based drug policy think tank Transform. Nitrous is now one of the most commonly used drugs amongst young people in the United States in the United Kingdom, nearly twice as popular as cocaine, and second only to cannabis. In the U.S., according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, over 12 million people in the United States have tried laughing gas at least once in their lives. In both the U.K. and the U.S., the use of nitrous oxide at outdoor music festivals is becoming increasingly common, where it is often referred to, at least in the media, as hippie crack. This nickname is due to its short-lasting effects, which, like crack cocaine, last only a few minutes, rather than its addictive potential, which, unlike crack cocaine, is very, very low. At these festivals, the most popular method of consumption is to fill a regular party balloon with gas from a pressurized tank or canister, and then to inhale the gas from the balloon. This is actually a common-sense harm reduction measure, rather than inhaling directly from the tank because it allows the nitrous to warm up to room temperature. Compressed nitrous oxide is extremely cold when it comes out of the tank and could severely damage the user's lips, mouth, and throat if inhaled directly. Earlier this summer, the UK's Conservative government passed a law called the Psychoactive Substances Bill, which attempts to ban the creation of new psychoactive drugs and was primarily aimed at curtailing the development of synthetic cannabinoids, such as spice or K2. However, it is so broadly drafted that would that it would make it an offense to produce, supply, offer to supply, possess with intent to supply, import or export psychoactive substances. That is, any substance intended for human consumption that is capable of producing a psychoactive effect. The circular definition aside, it does contain certain exceptions for quote legitimate substances such as food, alcohol, tobacco, nicotine, caffeine, and medical products. As many drug policy advocates have pointed out, this could actually lead to greater public health risks, which without actually reducing use. Instead, it would disincentivize the use of balloons, which, as we've just discussed, is relatively low risk, but would obviously be considered an illegal recreational use and not a legitimate use. Instead, it would incentivize inhalation through a surgical mask, 
a misuse of medical devices, which can actually create a much greater risk of asphyxiation. That's because the volume of nitrous oxide offered by a balloon is far lower than an anesthetic dose, and the user is unlikely to lose consciousness. In the rare case that they do, most commonly from holding the gas in their lungs for too long, the balloon will simply fall away from their mouth, and they would begin to breathe atmospheric air again and recover. However, with a surgical tube or mask on their face, far larger doses can be inhaled, and users will, if they continue to inhale pure nitrous oxide, gradually drift into unconsciousness. If the tube or mask is not then removed um, by a friend or someone nearby, unconsciousness will be succeeded by oxygen starvation and, in some cases, death. As with alcohol prohibition and marijuana prohibition, bans on recreational nitrous oxide are unlikely to to succeed in eliminating the demand for the substance and cannot eliminate supply entirely because of all the legitimate medical, commercial, and industrial uses of the gas. So instead, it would just drive the recreational market underground, where the supply is more likely to be contaminated or mixed with other gases, users face greater risks of violence in obtaining the drug, and all of the other well-known consequences of prohibition will be repeated, which we should all know better by now. Here in the U.S., a new, tr- a new trend is emerging in medical uses. While nitrous oxide has long been used in Europe and Canada to ease the pain of childbirth, it has only recently seen a resurgence in the United States. It was once popular for this use in the early 1900s, but was sidelined in the 1930s with the invention of the epidural. But while an epidural can cost up to $3,000 on top of an expensive uh, hospital stay already, opting for nitrous oxide instead costs as little as $100. The FDA approved new equipment for delivery room use, too, in 2011, which could also help explain the resurgence. According to one report, as few as 5 to 10 hospitals were using nitrous oxide for women in labor a decade ago. And now, several hundred hospitals around the country are giving women that option. That's all for this week's segment of Drug of the Month, Recent News and Trends in Nitrous Oxide, and the last episode about nitrous oxide. Next week, we'll be back with an overview of October's Drug of the Month, psilocybin, commonly known as magic mushrooms. All right, everybody, now it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be moving a bit out of the policy world and more into the realm of direct service, focusing in on the Zendo Project, an awesome initiative by MAPS, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And Zendo Project does psychedelic harm reduction at music festivals and other events. We're joined by Sarah Gale, Harm Reduction Coordinator for MAPS Zendo Project, and Irina Alexander, a lead Zendo Project volunteer. Thank you both for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having us. So so to get things started off, I mean, many of our viewers or listeners may be familiar with it, but uh, what exactly is the Zendo Project? I guess if you could explain just kind of what you do and what exactly psychedelic harm reduction means for people that may be unfamiliar with it. Yeah, I can get that. This is Sarah. So um, the Zendo Project is a community outreach and psychedelic harm reduction program that provides safe spaces at festivals for people who are having difficult or overwhelming experiences, psychedelic related or otherwise. 
Uh, so what we do is we create a space, actual physical space, where we have trained volunteers who are trained to offer peer-to-peer -peer counseling and support uh, to people and assist them in transitioning those somewhat sometimes difficult experiences into potential opportunities for growth and even potentially healing. Um, and we also provide education and training. So um, at every festival that we go to, we provide a training that's open to the public that is geared towards our volunteers, but open towards everybody that really discusses the actual, you know, risks, potential risks associated with psychedelic use. And that's kind of what harm reduction really does is it's really aiming at reducing the harm associated with drug use because what we're what we're really trying to get at here is the notion that people are going to take drugs no matter how many laws you mm -hmm. have against that it's going to happen and so how can we create a safe environment where people are um, you know where we're decreasing the amount of hospitalizations and arrests that are related to drug use and we're helping people uh, turn those potentially traumatic experiences into opportunities for growth. Well, thank you. That's I mean, it's just such a it's such an awesome project, and uh, I'm so glad that there's an organization out there doing things like this. And just in, in terms of some some ba more background there, how exactly did the Zendo project get started, and and how long has it been around for? Yeah, so the the Zendo officially started in its current iteration in 2012 at Burning Man. Um, but MAPS uh, has been working with um, harm reduction since, I mean, for a while now. MAPS started in 1986, but in 2002, uh, some staff and volunteers from MAPS went to Boom Festival in Portugal uh, shortly after personal use uh, was decriminalized in Portugal. So that was 2002. And we helped out there. And then in the years that followed, we worked... Um, side by side with Sanctuary at Burning Man, which is um, the Burning Man Rangers have something called Sanctuary, which is a very similar service where they help people out who are having a hard time. And uh, so we we helped a little bit with Sanctuary between those years um, after 2002. In 2012, the Zendo, the actual Zendo project was officially launched. And that was, as I said, at Burning Man at a camp called Fractal Nation there. And so we just had our fourth year. Uh, we've been to other events um, internationally and nationally, including uh, the, the world's largest regional burn, which is Africa Burn. And uh, we've also been to Lightning in a Bottle in California, Envision Festival. Um, we are doing symbiosis. We're actually at symbiosis right now. I'm not, Irina and I are not, but the uh, mm. lot of the crew is. And, uh, yeah, we, we've done some smaller events as well. We did the cannabis cup in Colorado and Denver this past year. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, we That's do bigger events. I didn't realize you did some kind of marijuana focused events and stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were um, contacted by the organizers of the Cannabis Cup, and uh, we worked alongside medical there. So at all of our events that we work at, we really uh, strive to be located near medical so that we can triage with medical and security. And what we've found is that if we have a location that is near medical and security and we are in contact and communication with them through radio, uh, that we are really able to provide um, the best services because 
you know, we're able to uh, filter out the people who come to us who might actually have a, a real medical um, emergency or medically related incident. So it's really important that uh, communication and connection with medical and security uh, is really at the, at the cornerstone of what we do. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so just to, to clarify a little bit, so the folks working with the Zendo project aren't necessarily medical staff, but folks who would be uh, kind of coaching people through these experiences. And then if somebody is uh, having a really serious health issue, you'd re- then refer them to, to the doctors on, on call. Irina, you want to get that? Sure. Um, yeah, that that um, says it pretty well. We don't do any sort of um, medical procedures. Like within the Zendo, we just refer people out if it ever gets to a medical issue. We have volunteers there who are potentially medically trained, but that's just so we can help with the triage process. Very cool. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll like bandage up someone's finger if if that's all that's <laughs> going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so I guess to get a kind of a better understanding of how exactly this all works. Could you walk me through maybe uh, some of the more, I guess, what what's kind of a typical uh, bad experience that someone's having that one of the most common things you see and how would you deal with that sort of situation? Yeah, um, so the experiences that we see in the space really run the gamut um, from everything from just someone who's, you know, kind of having a little bit of a hard time and needs someone to talk to and just things are coming up uh, you know, what happens a lot of times is people in a recreational setting will take a substance and their intention and their goal is to have fun and they're out with their friends. And then mm-hmm. uh, if, you know, because psychedelics are, are catalysts, because the term, you know, psychedelic literally means mind manifesting, it, it shows us to ourselves. And so uh, it can bring up emotional, mental um, material that uh, could be could feel a little strange in contrast to the, I'm just going out dancing, having fun with my friends environment. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what, what can happen then is that, you know, people start to resist whatever's coming up for them and they can start to feel uh, anxious, frightened, fear, you know, fearful. So we get people who are just having, you know, kind of a hard time all the way to people who are having like, you know, ex- really extreme experiences where, you know, these are the cases where we've seen it shows, you know, in the past, what happens is those people end up being sedated or they end up being arrested because they're being incredibly disruptive. They're being violent towards others or themselves. Um, so we're also equipped to handle those situ- those more extreme situations. Um, as Irina was saying, you know, we, we're not offering medical care. A lot of our, um, but a lot of our volunteers and all of our core staff really are trained in the mental health fields. So we have psychiatrists, psychotherapists um, on our staff and in our volunteer ranks. But what um, what we do, we don't call therapy. We call it peer-to-peer counseling and support. Uh, but we, we do have people who, you know, who work in the ER, who are psychiatric nurses, people who are really prepared to work with those more extreme incidents. So it really looks different um, you know, every single situation is is unique, but that's what we're we're equipped to handle—kind of a, a full spectrum, a full range of situations. 
I would also add that it varies festival to festival at Burning Man because it's such an extreme environment. A lot of people will come in just because they're feeling dehydrated or just because they're feeling like really confused because of all the blinky things that are out there. <laughs> so it really depends on what event we're talking about, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of different stimuli in that environment, I'm sure. And yeah, so that, that brings us to uh, one of the main things that I really wanted to talk about today was the experience at, at Burning Man most recently. Uh, and, and so that was interesting how you had explained, Sarah, because I didn't realize that the Zendo project was actually kind of birthed out of Burning Man, which which completely makes sense to me. But with this most recent uh, Burning Man 2015, I know that you had organized a, a large group of volunteers to, to attend there and actually provide services and I think even had two locations set up. Uh, so, Irina, could you tell me a little bit more about uh, what that was like being a, a volunteer on the ground there and especially... Kind of what did the setup visually look like uh, or, or like what kind of environment are you creating for these people? Sure. Um, yeah, you're, you're right to say that this is actually the first year that we've had two Zendos, um, one on each side of the playa to right across from each other. So um, hopefully everyone is always within walking distance to a Zendo. Um, this year was really unique in the sense that we actually got to team up in a much stronger way with Burning Man Org and with the Rangers and medical um, crisis intervention team. And it felt like it was really very much a team effort this year. Everyone would kind of like pitch in and figure out where it was that um, the Zendos kind of, you know, line of duty ended and where someone else picked up. Um, so that was, it was really interesting and it's really fascinating to just see the Burning Man society just develop in, in this kind of supportive bubble for everyone. Uh, mm -hmm. As far as visually the space, it we try to make it a super little cozy place that everyone who was having a difficult experience would want to walk into, you know, kind of like like a cute little dusty living room. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have little carpets and beds that have color matching sheets on them and um, tea that we offer and snacks and you know just like uh, what you would want your like psychedelic grandma to <laughs> to offer you if you were to walk in having a difficult trip <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if i if i was having a terrible time i would definitely want to run into a psychedelic grandma that sounds fantastic <laughs> and so it, it's, it's trying to create a much more kind of welcoming welcoming chill experience as opposed to more of like a a doctor's office sort of feel for sure mm -hmm, yeah and, and in both spaces basically there are two yurt setups um, one year it was built completely out of cardboard over a series of a couple of months with the hands of our volunteers, which is incredible. And it has this really unique structure. Um, it's got an opening up top so you can see the stars at night or watch the sky during the day. Oh, wow. And in the wow. other year, um, it's, uh, it's set up in a similar sort of structure, but the top is closed off, but it's like this beautiful open space. Um, with kind of a center that's open for people to move around in. And, and yeah, so Irina, you mentioned how uh, this year it was much that you had a really good partnership with with Burning Man Org. Uh, I was wondering, Sarah, could you talk a little bit more about that? What what what's that relationship look like? Is this kind of an official service of Burning Man now, or were they just kind of working working with you to to allow you to do this independently? Yeah, so we're currently not um, an official service of Burning Man or officially uh, affiliated with, with Burning Man organization. We are still considered a theme camp. Uh, that being said, they know about us. Um, we're on the map. We were in the survival guide. Um, 
which is oh, cool. really, uh, really helpful because then, you know, that's the, the document that people get when they're first coming into Burning Man. And so they can learn, okay, here's where medical is, here's harm reduction services. And so even though it's not an official collaboration, um, you know, we, we triage with medical and with rangers in terms of um, if rangers, you know, find somebody that they think uh, would be a good fit for the Zendo, they can bring them to us. Um, we did have a number of people come from medical, um, the medical people brought us. Um, so it's really at the discretion of, of the rangers, of, of medical. But there's definitely been this year, um, you know, we've seen an increased uh, uh push for harm reduction services uh, um, actually coming from from a Burning Man organization, but also coming from law enforcement, local law enforcement. So the BLM, um, mm -hmm. you know, really actually uh, communicated more to Burning Man that they, they wanted to see more harm reduction services on Playa. So we've actually had um, really good uh, communication and uh, um, situations with what well, law enforcement they've been they've actually been really supportive we've had people from the blm actually bring people to us um and in the past wow. not just this year but in the past and, and put you know release people into our custody um so yeah all of the interactions that we've had with law enforcement have been really positive um and and we're increasing increasingly you know having a presence at burning man but you know, as we might talk about more later with um, policy-related um, questions, it um, it really it's tricky for a lot of festival organizers because they're walking that line between you know the the Rave Act, which was set in place mm -hmm. um, in 2002, which you know says that if you provide these services at your festival, that um, you're condoning drug use, which is just absolutely ridiculous, and it's caused a lot of um, problems in, you know, in, in the electronic dance music scene and festival scenes because, um, you know, festivals are afraid to provide water or afraid to provide spaces for people to, um, to have little chill spaces for people to escape from the crowd um, because out of worry that that's going to be looked at as condoning drug use. And so it's, it's a slow process. Um, and I think that as, you know, as there's a lot of people who are doing the good work on the policy side of things, we're beginning to see shifts and, and, uh, and for the better. Um, so hopefully, you know, next year, our plan is actually to be located much, much closer to medical. Um, and we'd still probably be, you know, a theme camp, our own kind of independent organization, but we would be closer to medical, which would be uh, helpful, um, creating ease for those handoffs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and I'm really happy that you brought up the Rave Act, actually, since that's something that we, we've talked about on the show before. So for any of our listeners, if this is maybe the first episode that you're listening to, or if you've only listened to the past couple, uh, we actually had a whole roundtable discussion specifically about the Rave Act uh, on our third episode back uh, at the end of July. So if this is something that's interesting, you, in, interesting to you, maybe uh, go back and check that one out. And um, in, on, in that vein... I, I am really curious about this is fantastic that the Burning Man organizers were happy to work with you and that law enforcement was so so supportive, which honestly, I'm still a little surprised about, but really grateful for. Is that kind of unique to Burning Man um, in terms of these other these other festivals that you go to? Is law enforcement still pretty accepting and, and helpful or is there uh, has there ever been law enforcement uh 
organizations or officers that have been more confrontational or, or trying to block your work or anything? So I haven't volunteered at too many festivals with Zendo, but with Lightning in a Bottle, it was an incredible experience. That was really the first time that I saw law enforcement really um, involving itself in the Zendo and saying, you know what, like, we're going to hand people over here. These people know what they're doing. This is definitely a Zendo issue. And then um, they were involved in ways that they felt like they needed to be involved. But at other points, they would really respect what we were doing and, you know, work with us. So. Yeah, it's really incredible to see. Yeah, that's great. I'll add to that, um, that, you know, I think a lot of times um, law enforcement, security, they want um, the community to be able to take care of, of its own. <laughs> they don't want their mm -hmm. cars and their jails filled up with people who are tripping. Um, that's not really what they're there to do. You know, there's not really a lot that they're going to get out of someone who's tripping, who maybe doesn't even have anything on them, who is just having a difficult time. Um, so what we've noticed yeah. is that they're actually more than willing to um, hand people over to us. They really, they want, I think, more um, accountability in the community. And so they've been really, they've been really grateful. Um, I think that we've helped kind of lighten the load a little bit. That's fantastic. Um, I, I'm honestly a little a little surprised that they've been so supportive since sometimes there can be really confrontational relationships with trying to provide sorts of harm reduction services with uh, law enforcement taking more of the criminal justice approach. So this is uh, really great to see that we're making progress there. And as far as also the uh, the comparisons of, say, Burning Man to some of these other other non-Burning Man festivals, do you feel like the... Um, kind of the audience and the community there is substantially different too. I wonder, I guess it could go either of two ways, like at Burning Man, were there a lot more people needing help because it was say much more of an environment and say there was a lot of uh, people trying psychedelics for the first time um, in comparison to maybe uh, more of a, a music festival or a concert? Um, or was it that there was more experienced users uh, so they didn't need their services as much, or is it really just kind of uh, down to the individual? So yeah, it really, really depends on um, the the festival, the individual. It's really different. There's really no like trends that I would say between Burning Man and other like a difference between Burning Man and other festivals. I would say that Burning Man is a much bigger event. You know, it's approximately 70,000 people. So when we look at our numbers for Burning Man compared to something like Lightning a Bottle, which is an average, I think, of 15,000, um, you know, or something like Envision, which is 3,000 people, we actually get very similar numbers at Burning Man. So, um, so comparatively, actually, uh, we are not getting, uh, how do I say this, the percentage of people that we're getting at Burning Man is actually lower than the amount of people that we're getting at other festivals. And part of that mm -hmm. is because we're not like an official a Burning Man, um, I think, you know, Burning Man associated organization. So at other uh -huh. festivals, we are literally... Pretty much every other festival we do, we are located directly next to medical insecurity. And mm -hmm. um, so everything that, you know, comes to them, we get, we um, are also there to support. So it's it's different, I think, because we're more well known at these, at these other festivals. I think that the word is out there a little bit more. 
um, were really promoted a little bit more. Um, so I think that that's one of the major differences. Um, the other thing is that Burning Man has, um, you know, the Green Dot Rangers have been doing this work for a long time. They, they have been equipped to help people. They have people who have been rangers for, you know, upwards of 20 years, people who are really well trained. They have a crisis intervention team. So they already have an established kind of um, network of people who are doing these emergency care services. The Zendo is adding something very unique in that we we have a pretty large capacity. We actually have a lot of physical space, as well as um, our volunteers are trained specifically with psychedelics. So they're trained specifically with this is the way that psychedelics interact with with the men, with the mind, with the body. Um, a lot of people, a lot of the volunteers we get, um, you know, either have studied a lot of, you know, psychedelics or transpersonal psychology, or they've been even therapists in, um, in government approved studies using psychedelics. So we really kind of, our niche is that we're, we specialize in psychedelic crisis, whereas um, the Green Dot Rangers at Burning Man or the uh, crisis intervention team really are, are uh, broader. They, they do a lot of um, other things as well. So we do work with people who are having difficult experiences that are not related to psychedelics, but I would say that, you know, that's really our focus. Um, so I think that that's kind of uh, illustrates some of the differences between other events and Burning Man. But as far as things taken, uh, you know, we don't know because that's the, what's the problem with criminalization. <laughs> you know, we, we don't have this much information because, you know, people come in and they, they say they took one thing, but who knows what they actually took because, um, you know, because of adulteration that has resulted from, from substances being illegal. And, um, so it's, it's really tricky. It's really hard to tell the anecdotal, uh, information is really not as solid as it is in say Portugal where drugs are decriminalized. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So even if someone thinks that they took a specific drug, that may not actually be the thing that they ingested in the first place anyway. Yeah. And so these are incredibly important services and it's fantastic that you're located at all these different events. But uh, Irina, being someone who who's coached a lot of people through this sort of experience at these events, I was wondering if you'd be able to provide just a kind of some more general guidelines, say for our listeners, if they are using psychedelics, not at a festival that Zendo's at, say if someone was just having a, a bad trip in some other sort of environment or just at a at the at, at a concert that uh, that you're not present at, what, what sort of advice would you would you give that person or what kind of uh, good pointers do you have to help people avoid that sort of experience? Sure. Well, you know, harm reduction is really important. Set and setting are crucial during psychedelic experiences knowing to the best of your ability what it is that you're taking is super crucial. Um, The four principles that we kind of follow by at the Zendo, which can be followed by anywhere, is first off creating a safe space. So a lot of times people will go to these, you know, giant parties or festivals that don't have easy access to transportation or don't have access to water or can get really confusing and loud and, you know, just think twice before ingesting a substance that might launch you into a different universe when the universe that you're in currently may be a little hard to handle. (laughs) Um, The second principle is sitting, not guiding. So if you're with someone having a difficult experience, then, you know, not like forcing them in one direction or another, not saying like, and now we're 
in in this field and you're feeling these things and you're not like projecting things onto them um what we do at the zendo uh, is actually okay. really simple and that's that's one of the reasons that i love the zendo is that the services we provide are so easy it's literally just like sitting with someone and being there for them mm -hmm. um the third one is talking through and not down so instead of telling someone, you know, you're not tripping anymore, like, it's fine, it's fine, you'll be okay. Um, you just kind of like, inquisitively ask them where they're at, maybe, maybe remind them that they took a substance, but um, really kind of like talk them through having the experience and without trying to shut them down. Um, and then the fourth is difficult is not the same as bad. So a lot of times you'll hear someone say, Oh, I had such a bad trip you know, oh, I had such a bad experience. Mm -hmm. But the way that we see it is that it could be difficult, but the most difficult trips are sometimes the most influential. Um, sometimes they're the ones that you learn the most out of. So, you know, if you or someone else is having a difficult experience, that's just a good reminder through it is that it might actually end up being one of the most life-changing events ever. That's fantastic. I, I love all four of those principles. And so I'll, I'll be sure to the, uh, throw those up on the This Week in Drugs website with this uh, this episode show notes so that people are able to read those and really take them to heart if they're ever uh, facing this sort of experience in the future. Yeah. So with this podcast, we always um, we, we talk about all sorts of uh, aspects of drugs, whether it's the science or the, or the use of them and the history uh, but we always try to tie it back to policy just because we think that it is incredibly important that uh, even if we're providing these harm reduction services, while we're still criminalizing drugs, it, it makes things uh, so much more difficult and dangerous for people. So I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about how you see uh, these sorts of direct services uh, connecting with the, the policy side of drugs. Yeah, so I think that um, it's definitely absolutely connected and part of what I would say here is that, you know, the policies that we currently um, have are related to this stigma, which is related to this fear of, of substances, of drugs. And um, a lot of that fear is based in misinformation. And so definitely as far as our educational component of our mission, you know, really trying to educate about the actual risks versus the kind of the misinformation that we've been given as a society, I think really does help with the stigma related to, to use. Also, the way that we approach, our entire approach is based in um, de-escalization and reducing fear. So part of what happens with people is when they're having a difficult experience because of the stigma of psychedelics, because of the stigma of drugs, the way that people interact with those situations is often from a fear-based place because of misunderstanding. And so kind of like back to what Irina was saying with the difficult is not the same as bad, just that entire language around bad trips um, creates this fear. And so the, the way that we relate to people is, is um, escalated, is fearful. And what that results in, as we see time and time again, is um, really unnecessary hospitalizations and arrests. That isn't to say that, you know, at some points hospitalization um, wouldn't be, you know, a route because sometimes that is actually what's necessary if someone has a, a medical emergency related to substance use. Um, so there is a, a place for that. Um, but what we see is that there's a lot of unnecessary um, hospitalization and arrest. And so what that does is 
that continues to perpetuate that stigma because what communities see is there, you know, there's a festival that comes to town and then their hospitals are overrun with people who are freaking out on drugs. And so it creates, uh, you know, a perpetuation of that cycle of, oh, oh, this is this is bad. These are scary. We need to, you know, we need to these need to be criminalized um, and punitive measures need to be, you know, taken. So it's it really, I think, creates by us taking care of our community in this way, by people um, instead of those situations getting escalated by people getting actual um, support before those situations become to the point where somebody ends up in the hospital or arrested is really, I think, helping to decrease the stigma all around. Um, I think when, you know, people from law enforcement, like we were talking about earlier, see, oh, okay, these there's different ways of working with this. We've actually had, you know, security guards um, say, oh, I want to come and volunteer with you guys. We've actually had them sign up to volunteer with us. Um, because they're seeing, oh, there's a different way of doing it. And so I think that that really reverberates throughout the community. Um, and I think it makes, you know, it, it look not so um, scary um, and dangerous. And I do think that that is going to affect uh, policy. Irina, would you add anything to that? So my roots were actually in drug policy reform. Um, shout out to SSDP, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I went from drug policy reform to direct service work. I actually work full time as an outreach counselor for homeless youth in San Francisco. And um, really what I what I kind of came to understand was that so many people in the drug policy world were in there because they just wanted people to be treated well. <laughs> you know, the drug board yeah. does not treat people well. <laughs> Um, and, and when it comes down to it, I think it, it can say a lot, um, the way that people treat people having the most difficult experiences can say a lot about society, you know, so if, um, whether or not it's people in poverty or people with mental health stuff going on, or in this case, people having difficult psychedelic experiences, the way that we treat that group of people as a society says a lot. Um, so, you know, what I do at work at my full-time job and what I do at the Zendo is all really similar. It's all really meeting people where they're at in a non-judgmental, compassionate, supporting place and really just, just treating people well, you know, it really comes down to this like simplicity that, um, that's what we're seeking through a lot of our policy change too, is that we're just, we're just trying to create this world where people are treated with compassion and love. And that's really what it comes down to. Right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and that segues really well into our into our last question here, because we always wrap up every single one of our discussions with a with a call to action, since educating people, learning about this sort of thing is is really interesting. But it's kind of useless if, if our listeners and, and myself are not using that knowledge to then improve our communities and make the world a better place and treat people better. So if you could have our listeners do something right now, what, what would it be that you'd ask them to do? So I think that it would be um, great for people to check out our website at zendoproject.org. And a lot of people are interested in volunteering with us. So that would be one place that you could get involved with direct action um, and really helping people in your community is to become involved with the project. So um, we have uh, rolling volunteer applications that um, we accept volunteers on a festival by festival basis. 
And uh, so zenderproject.org, and you can go on the volunteers page and sign up for our email newsletter. And then what that will do is you'll get a monthly uh, email update about the festivals that we're attending, as well as uh, news and information about Zendo in the media. So that's a really um, great way to get involved with Zendo directly. Um, also, we are a nonprofit organization, and we are always in need of more um, support to, in order to expand these services to other festivals. And so right now we have a pretty small team, so we're limited in the amount of festivals that we can do per year, but we're really hoping um, as, the, as time progresses that we are going to be able to expand our services. So um, there's a donate page on the website, um, a, a donate button where you can go and contribute um, to the project. Uh, and the other thing that I would say is just continue to educate yourself. So part of what's so amazing, I think, about um, you know, this project and projects like it is the education piece. So you know, on our website, we have a lot of resources. Uh, continue to learn um, about about different substances, about their effects, and about what you can do to, you know, decrease risk and support people, including yourself, um, who are having a difficult time. So really what one of our aims is, is to extend, you know, a safety net out into the community where, uh, you know, our goal is eventually we're obsolete. Like, this is just, this is just the way of being. Like, people are just caring for each other in this way and are just have the tools to be able to support one another. And, um, you know, so we really hope that this is something that extends beyond even the festival environment, that this becomes, you know, uh, a model for how to work with difficulty, um, not just psychedelic related, but, you know, but it also becomes a model for, yeah, how to work with people in these more in these altered extreme states. Um, so that's that, those are some things that I would uh, suggest. Perfect. Thank you, Sarah. And Irina, what would you ask our guests to do? Or our listeners, sorry. <laughs> um, well, on top of all of that, I would ask them, ask them to check out amendtheraveact.org, um, where you can find out more information about what the Rave Act is and how we can put an end to this ridiculous policy. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. All right. So th that's the conclusion of our discussion. Again, this has been Sarah Gale and Irina Alexander. Uh, both working with MAPS Zendo Project, which does psychedelic harm reduction at music festivals and other events all over the country. So thank you both so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks for listening to episode 12 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Rochelle Young. The show was produced by Tyler Williams, and we'd like to thank Sarah Gale and Irina Alexander from the Zendo Project once again for joining us for this discussion. Be sure to tune in next week for our usual rundown of the weekly news, an overview of our next drug of the month, psilocybin, and a roundtable discussion with John McArdle, founder of the Amethyst Initi Initiative, and Alex Korokne Palace, president of the National Youth Rights Association, two national leaders in the fight to lower the legal drinking age. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show and who's behind it, links to our guests and their organizations, and so much more. 
Remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week.